Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and favorite autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. We're going back to a fan favorite this week and watching NCIS. We'll get into different types of evidence, including bite marks, and at the end, we'll get into our true crime story of the week, which is one that you probably all know, but we're going to tell it from a different point of view. You'll have to keep on listening for that. So let's get into it. So this episode, we open up with couples like making out around a campfire. It gets broken up by authorities. Looks like military. And I was like, this is intense. So one of the officers goes to pull on the leg of someone he thinks is like hiding out in the bushes. Like, hey, get out of there. But when he pulls, the entire leg comes out. It is a severed leg. So the team gets called to the scene, which is at Quantico. And Ducky, the team's Emmy, and one of our favorite characters ever, is at the scene with the rest of the team, which typically doesn't happen. As we've said time and time again, the medical examiner, the pathologist typically doesn't go to a scene but maybe ducky does i don't know how it works for ncis maybe the yeah maybe the ncis team has different standards of who goes to scenes yeah i was wondering that maybe maybe he goes they also have like a smaller team so maybe it's just also like the circumstances maybe they're like oh i want the pathologist here that's true it's like severed body parts at the scene maybe Mm -hmm. so we have a green flag for the navy guy telling gibbs he moved one body part which helps the investigators do their job when they have all the information So, like, they know where body parts are found, if anything was moved. It's very helpful. So, Gibbs gives out jobs, telling someone to shoot, a.k.a. photograph, someone to bag and tag, and someone to collect samples. Ducky says the liver temp is out of the question, which made me chuckle, because there's no liver to get the temp for. But that the marbling on the skin of the legs indicates advanced decomp, but the lack of insect activity in the moist area of open thigh indicates a secession of decay. The muscles have gone through all three stages of rigor mortis, so that gives them at least 48 hours. So we have talked time and time again about rigor mortis, but just a refresher, rigor mortis happens because metabolism stops post-mortem. So without cellular energy in the form of adenosine triphosphate, ATP, muscles perpetually contract and fuse, causing the stiffness that you get with rigor. So there are actually six stages of rigor, and the Medical Legal Death Investigator Training Manual lists six different stages for rigor in human beings. These stages are absent, minimal, moderate, advanced, complete, and past. So rigor mortis is a phenomenon that starts shortly after death where the muscles become stiff and hard, as we just said. So it's a biochemical process related to muscle contraction and is useful for forensic pathologists and medical legal death investigators to estimate the time of death. But... This leg also looks like it's in pristine condition, apparently untouched by air, water, soil, or insects, and not frozen because there's no ice crystals. Ducky theorizes possibly found in a basement, maybe someone who, quote, kills, cuts, and keeps, which is horrifying to think about. So we'll give another green flag for photographing the scene and collecting evidence. Dinozo and Ziva are arguing about what she should be, quote, bagging and tagging. She finds a piece of trash, and Dinozo tells her just to throw it away, but she insists on keeping it in case it is important to the investigation. Ziva ends up moving the trash and finds a cut-off tip of a rubber glove, and Gibbs tells them that he wants every paper and, quote, stepped-on leaf within a 10-foot radius of the severed legs collected. So we have another green flag in the morgue for swabbing the skin of the leg for any trace evidence. They can tell that the legs are female and that the Jane Doe is a young female, which is based off of the femur length, one of the last bones in the body to fully develop. So in the female, growth is complete around the age of 25. Their victim is between 19 and 21. There is no toe print database. Wouldn't that be interesting if there was, though? I was thinking about that. Don't they take footprints of babies in the hospital? I think they do. If they do, 
Couldn't they just simply make a toe print database off of all of that? But that would require you having been born in a hospital, which I was not. <laughs> True. Yeah. Fun fact, Jess. <laughs> Fun fact about Jess, she was not born in a hospital. <laughs> Oh my god we were just talking about that the other day <laughs> <laughs> if you're curious i was born in a basement of the house her parents lived in not like a random basement yeah it's not a creepy <laughs> not basement a we- <laughs> not like a random person's basement she's a winter baby <laughs> could you imagine if there was in addition to like all of the other databases that there are like a toe print database for instances like this yeah like a whole footprint but i guess that might be hard yeah because most of the time people wear shoes like it's not like hands like fingerprints are left everywhere at the scene most of the time people wear shoes, but yeah. it would come in handy in cases like this. We should start collecting toe prints. We're going to make our own toe print database. <laughs> Instead of fingerprints at autopsy, I'm taking toe prints from now on. If they don't have feet, uh, our boss is going to be like, to do. what are you two doing? <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be like, can you cut the shit out? Please stop whatever. Get back to your job. Stop whatever you're doing. It's not helpful. We're <laughs> just going on a tangent. We need a toe print database. You don't understand. There is no toe print database, so they'll have to rely on DNA. There is a spot of blood on the leg, but it looks like it's possibly the assailants. So they put it through mass spec. So mass spec is short for mass spectrometry. I always say it wrong. I can never pronounce this word. It's really embarrassing because my boyfriend's a chemist and he's done this and talked to me about it so many times and I still can't say it. Mass spectrometry. But it sounds wrong when I say it. It's like when you type a word too often and it looks wrong, but you know it's right. Yeah. You know what word always gets me for some reason? Deliver. Because it's, I think it's because we work in a morgue and I always see the word liver. So like I see D, liver. It's like, it, it just makes me think of like, oh, they were delivered. delivered. I delivered somebody today. <laughs> <laughs> I took out their liver. Oh no, that's not what I mean. I know. That's what, I don't know why. I, like whenever I look at it for too long, I'm like, this word is weird. Anyway, mass spec is short for mass spectrometry, but it is an analytical tool useful for measuring the mass to charge ratio of one or more molecules present in a sample. So typically mass spectrometers can be used to identify unknown compounds by their molecular weight or to quantify known compounds or to determine structure and chemical properties of molecules. So they're taking this blood, running it through mass spec to break it down by its molecular structure, basically. The victim was dead long before she was dissected. So it looks like the cut was made using a surgical saw. So Ducky also thinks that the killer may have bitten this female and then meticulously removed the area of skin that he bit. So Ducky wants to try and get a bite mark off of the under layer of damaged tissue. And I am a little skeptical that they could actually get an impression from that damaged tissue, also considering how time can affect a bite mark and how movement pressure can affect a bite mark. I'm not sure it would actually work if we tried it. Maybe Ducky's magic. We know Ducky's magic. Ducky is definitely magic. He's a wizard. Him and his bow ties. He has secrets in there. He has secrets. If anybody can do it, Ducky can. But bite marks most often appear as either elliptical or round areas of contusion, skin abrasions, and sometimes indentations, depending on how much pressure is applied. So depending upon the recognizable characteristics recorded in the bite, it may be possible not only to identify it as human in origin, but also be able to determine the biter's jaw shape, jaw size, and the number of teeth present or missing. So the autopsy report says the tibia is 38.34 centimeters, so Based on this, they are calculating the probable height, which is a green flag. We've talked about using anthropology and bone measurements to measure height before. But typically, the most common bone used to measure the height is the femur. And I was I was curious why they didn't do that. Because they already used femur length earlier to determine her age. 
So why are they using her tibia for her height? Did they have the full leg or was it like partial femur? Or was it from knee down? I don't remember. What, that's what I was wondering. It was like, it was thigh. There was thigh there because they were talking. They also had a weird conversation about her like shapely legs, which was really off-putting. Oh, yeah. And even Ducky got involved in it. And I was like, Ducky, I expected better of you. But he was even in his like old man ways. Like, yeah, she's got the gams. And I'm like, oh my God, Ducky, please stop being a creepy old man. But I don't know if maybe it wasn't cut right at the hip. Maybe it was cut below. I can only think like maybe it wasn't a full femur, so they can't get the full measurement to determine height. So that's why they were using the tibia. Or maybe NCIS was just trying to be very creative in their forensic ways. Maybe. I That was my first guess was I couldn't remember and I didn't go back to watch it when I was going through the notes if it was a full leg. But I feel like it wasn't fully cut at like the hip joint. So it was probably cut just below the pelvis or something. Yeah. So Dinozo, again, we got into a lot of like objectifying women in this episode, which I wasn't cool with. But Dinozo, very stereotypical womanizer, is able to correctly guess the woman's height and weight just based off what he saw of her legs. So he correctly guesses a 2T. Like she's like, he's like, oh, she was probably about 5'8 and 125 pounds. And that's pretty much exactly what she was when they do their magical math in the computer. So Abby is working with a new assistant and is trying to get him to loosen up. She said the blood on the leg looked like it was different than the blood of the victim, so it could belong to their killer. She also found a smudge print or a partial print on the tip of the piece of the rubber glove that Ziva found at the scene. So she runs that through Aphis and it came back as a match for Dinozo's print. The drama. Dun, dun, dun. They called Dinozo and he said he must have ripped his glove at the scene. So they collect all the trash from the scene that day and count up all the gloves that they had and none of them appear to be ripped. He said maybe another time he was at Quantico, he had a ripped glove. Abby says that only three points on the fingerprint match and that they need 11 to confirm a match. Chip, her ever so helpful assistant, chimes in and says that the minimum to go to court is actually one point match of fingerprint. So I've always heard of a, like a 12 point rule. I actually went back and like, my class notes to try and find where I read that just to make sure I didn't make it up but I was having a hard time finding it but I always thought you needed 12 points to match and I think I associated with Lacard's principle so I thought this meant that most courts wouldn't accept it as evidence unless you got 12 points of a match on a fingerprint but I think different courts must accept different criteria Base. I did some quick Google searching and I, th- I think the average I saw was 8 to 12 point matches were typically the average. So Abby is going to redo the fingerprint match by hand and it still comes back as a match for Dinozo. She does it in like two seconds too. She's like, I'm going to do this by hand. I thought when she meant by hand that she physically had the print like on a piece of paper looking at it and was going to match it how fingerprint examiners do and then have two people after confirm that it's a match. Everyone, that is how fingerprint examiners do it and that's what I thought was going to happen too. You have to confirm it's a match. A second person has to confirm it's a match. And I'm pretty sure like a third person all mm-hmm. independently have to confirm that, yes, this is a match before it's said to whoever else. And yeah, and you can't even say, like, say I'm fingerprint examiner one. I can't go to Jess and be like, hey, can you look at this? I think it's this person. I just have to give it to her to look at. It has to be totally yeah. unbiased. You can't have any outside judgments of Alice thinks that this, so now that's in the back of my head, so that's what I'm going to be thinking. Also, Aphis doesn't, oh, this should have been a red flag. Aphis just doesn't give you one name. 
it gives you, I forget the exact number. I want to say it's like might be 24 people that it could possibly be matched with. And then the fingerprint examiners look by hand. Yes. And that's when, okay, I get a list of 24 names. Okay, adding this to our red, red flag, flag tally. tally. So what would actually happen is somebody would run through AFES, they'd get 20 or so matches possible matches and then they would look by hand at those people's those 20 plus fingerprints against the one fingerprint they have go through each one see which one looks the closest to it and then get two other people to also do the same exact thing but not telling them what they think it is and it has to be confirmed by all three i believe but anyway abby did it way too quickly to claim that she did it by hand she's like i'm gonna do it by hand she did it in like two seconds she was just typed in her computer not by hand it was in the she computer. Did it computer it's still denozo she I'm dragged like, and dropped didn't do anything by hand <laughs> abby i love you don't do this to me you and ducky are letting me down this episode ducky was being sexist in the morgue <laughs> she's messing up her atheist <laughs> So it's still a match for Denozo when she does it by hand. So Gibbs tells her to put a rush on the blood sample that they found on one of the legs. And Abby said she already did that, but it has a 16-hour turnaround. Of course, this evidence, of course, they're being accurate with. Not the fingerprint evidence. Oh, no, the blood's going to take 16 hours. They get Denozo to do a bite mark impression to compare to the bite mark Ducky is trying to lift from the soft tissue in the one leg. And then they use 3D imaging to recreate Denozo's bite mark from there, from the mold that they get. They scan it against Ducky's image that he lifted from the soft tissue of the leg, and it looks like a perfect match. The investigation now is to get turned over to the FBI because they can't be investigating one of their people, but Gibbs tells the director, basically not so subtly, that he's still going to do his own investigation, and the director's like, I'm not going to try to stop you, but officially, I have to tell you to stop, but keep going. The team starts looking for missing females, fitting the rough description that they got from the measurements of the tibia and other info. Donoso thinks someone is setting him up, and he starts looking up arrestees who might be out to get him. The whole team is also trying to think who could be against him, and... <laughs> The list is getting long from people that Denozo has offended or scorned. And just then, the FBI comes in to question Denozo. They somehow know Gibbs. There's some kind of relationship that they must have had that I don't know because I don't watch the show often enough. And Gibbs asks to be kept in the loop because officially they can't be investigating, but he still wants to look out for his own guy. And while the FBI is interrogating Denozo, the team is told that they are going to have to turn over all the evidence collected. So Denozo starts stalling during his interrogation so that they have enough time to scramble and make copies of all of the evidence for themselves before turning it over. So one of the newer FBI agents wants to arrest Denozo, claiming that bite marks don't lie. I think bite marks are still considered admissible in court, however, there are a lot of factors that play into this. Skin itself is not an ideal impression material because it distorts and there's fat underneath the skin, which can cause movement, leading to a less accurate dental impression. Also, impressions can vary depending on the pressure applied, so like the more pressure Obviously, the more detail will be seen in the bite mark. And the team was able to successfully copy all of the evidence before surrendering it to the FBI. The FBI won't book Denozo, but they are going to take him into custody until everything gets sorted out. Abby's also worried she's screwed something up and she says she loves forensics and evidence, but it's now saying her friend is a murderer, which she doesn't believe. She knows that if this goes to court with the evidence she has, Denozo would go to prison for the rest of his life and she would be the person that put him there. Gibbs goes to visit Denozo in his cell and brings him pizza and Denozo says that he is a prosecutor's dream because he dates a lot of women and objectifies them. Also, the murder technically doesn't have a time of date, so Denozo's wondering how he could be getting slammed for not having an alibi. 
The team's going through all the people who Dinozo could have pissed off enough to frame him for murder. So McGee's lead suspect is George, and George was a forensic tech that Dinozo got fired by finding out he had mixed up blood evidence in 2002. He fought the firing in court and won, but hasn't been able to get a forensic job since. He had since disappeared and his court case was sealed. Ziva's lead suspect is a surgical nurse who met Dinozo in a serial rapist case at Quantico. She egged Dinozo's car and she's now in Virginia on her honeymoon. They bring her in and find out that she had dumped her now husband for a fling for Dinozo that ended badly. After the fling, she got back together with her ex-now husband, and she said she may not like Dinozo, but Dinozo could have reported her for all the harassment and the egging of the car, so if anything, she owes him. She said if someone is harassing Dinozo again, it's not her. Gibbs asks if her, if her husband knows about her relationship with Dinozo, and she said, of course he does, but that her husband is now a lawyer, and if he had a problem with someone, he would sue them. That's such a weird way to think about that. Like, I'm a lawyer. If I don't like what you do, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue your ass. It's the only option I have. I'm not going to talk to you about it. Sue you. Getting the legal papers now. You had a fling with my wife filing a lawsuit. So George is next on their list. The director was able to find his alias and last known address, and Chip, the assistant, chemically examined the sticky substance found on one of the legs and found it was an adhesive, like from duct tape. He uses FTIS and mass spec to show that the fiber had a coating from a 2004 Mustang, but Dinozo's Mustang is a 1966 Mustang. There's a quick montage of them doing different things in the lab, and the one thing that stood out to me was their use of an alternate light source on the leg to identify where the bite mark was and any other marks there was. So an alternative light source is typically used in crime scene investigation and post-mortem exams to identify many forms of different evidence. Utilizing ultraviolet light, investigators can identify physiological fluids like semen, urine, and saliva through the fluid's natural fluorescent properties. Various wavelengths can identify other characteristics of the evidence. UV light provides much more detail and contrast to an injured area, including bite marks, than standard lighting techniques. And there's two different techniques for UV light photography. In one method, that's known as reflective UV imaging, the wound is flooded with UV light and then... The reflected UV image is photographed. A UV bandpass filter mounted on the camera lens blocks all light returning to the film except UV. And the second method is called fluorescent UV imaging, and the wound is then flooded with only UV light. However, a different filter is used to block all UV rays returning to the camera so that you only see the visible light colors fluorescing from the wound, and that will be captured on the film. So sometimes, like, those images will either look like purple or yellow or orange because that filter is showing through. So photographs done with these techniques show wounds in much greater detail than would be possible with conventional photographic equipment, and they reveal images of wounds that could not be seen with the naked eye. So they go and talk to George, and he's doing an autopsy, and they ask to see his Jane Doe's, but he won't show them without a warrant. And this autopsy scene Yes, I give a green flag for his PPE, although he could have worn a mask, but I give a red flag for Ziva. She's, like, using the shears while this man is in the middle of the exam, and she just starts chopping away. Like, what was that? I gasped. I She bare hands the clippers. Which is gross. And just, this is, not that it would be good if she did this in Ducky's morgue, but this isn't even their morgue. She's just messing up a different autopsy. This is, I think this is, like, Virginia County's morgue. Yeah, she goes and she's, like, clipping 
really loudly clipping the ribs. Trying to intimidate him. And I'm like, you are... Not cool. That is a person. You are desecrating a corpse. Ziva. I'm so disappointed in everybody that I usually love in this episode. I was like, they let me down. Ziva. They let me down. What was that? I like, I couldn't believe. I I can't believe. I, I literally gasped when that came on. I was like... <gasps> She's using a human body as a prop to intimidate a man. and just, How dare she? And not only that, she's barehanding dirty clippers. Gross. Trying to get him to confess to a crime he may or may not have done. So the fiber found on the adhesive was a match for the carpet in Dinozo's car. He must have had them redone. And also the blood is a match. Dinozo is then arrested. Abby runs Jane Doe's DNA everywhere and finds a match for a Carla Johnson. They go to her and find a woman who is very much alive and working. She's a bone marrow transplant donor, and they got the match from a bone marrow database. So she gave a sample to a patient recently that died on the operating table. She says the patient would either be at the hospital morgue or the county's morgue because she was a Jane Doe. And that Jane Doe was brought to the Virginia County Coroner's Office where George, the forensic tech who they were just intimidating, works at. They look in the cooler, which has the bodies hanging from the ceiling, which I've never seen or heard of that before. Dude, again, I gasped. What the hell was that? It looked like, like, you know how in, like, the butcher walk-in coolers, they just have, like, the animals hanging? Like, that's what this looked like. But they were in bags still, and it was... They were not even in body bags. It was, like, just big plastic bags. How... Is that constructive for, like... How are they hanging? Are they... Is, like, the hook in them? Or is the hook in the bag? I think the hook was in the bag. I saw, like, a straight... It looked almost like a clothes hanger. What if that bag rips? What if they're too heavy for... How do they get the bodies... How do they get the bodies down? How do they get the bodies down onto a table and... How do they get them up there? This was a a stupid (laughs) walking cooler scene. I think this person had never been in an actual morgue, but maybe one time worked in a butcher shop and was like, I know, I know what it looks like. We can just film it at my butcher shop up the road. And they're like, that's how it is. Get some mannequins. (laughs) Get some mannequins to throw up on the hooks. It'll, I'm sure this is what they actually do. We got this, guys. I'm sure this is what it looks like. Not at all. Oh my God, could you imagine? And if we did that, it was also like a super creepy cooler. They were just using their flashlights. Our cooler has a million lights. Yeah, coolers have lights, everybody. Although I have been in the cooler when the lights have gone off and screamed and run out because I thought I was going to die. I thought I was in a, a horror movie. Yeah, that has happened to me and it was horrifying. We like lost power for two seconds. And then the generator... awful. The generator kicked on, which is super loud. Also, there's no windows back there, so it's pitch black as soon as the lights go out. And yeah, I screamed and ran out of the cooler. And then the lights came back on and someone came back and asked, all right, who got stuck in the cooler? All right, it was me. It was me. You could hear me yelling from the front offices. But yeah, it was pure nightmare fuel. Can you imagine if that is how we set it up at work? So not functional. How would we? I know we are strong, but we are also very short. How would we get the bodies down in the morning to set them up? For reference, we're like between 100 and 120 pounds each. Personally, I know I could not. I am 125. (laughs) (laughs) I could not lift a body that was on a hanger down to a table. I know. Not safely, at least. So, I don't know who thought this was how a more cooler works. They were clearly wrong, and I have so many other questions. But eventually, 
They find a body with no legs in the cooler, and they arrest George. He claims that Donozo is trying to set him up again, and Donozo is let out of holding. Abby doesn't think George did this himself, so she's running more tests. She says she found sodium, chloride, potassium, lactate, and urea, which is sweat, in the fiber sample found in the adhesive on the leg. She's trying to get DNA from that, and it turns out that it was Chip, her assistant. (gasps) Gasp! He got fired from a lab thanks to Dinozo, and he took the job to set up Dinozo. He got his bite mark from an apple, stole the glove from the trash, as well as DNA. He's holding Abby at knife point when the team sees the court file and recognizes Chip and runs in to save her. But she doesn't need saving, because she's a strong-ass woman. They find her sitting there with Chip bound and gagged on the floor with duct tape, so go, Abby. We love her. Hell yeah. And that's kind of how the episode ends, and she's like, can I work alone now? Yeah. I also love, so they they finally open that sealed court case of the guy who sued the state for having him fired and won. And there's there's court photographs, and you just see, plain as day, a picture of the actor who plays Chip, except he just has a little mustache. <laughs> <laughs> the old, and they're like, no, it's Chip, and they run back. It's like when you're like trying to sneak around, you just put a baseball cap on, and you're a totally different person. Baseball cap, no logo, which I always think is more suspicious. Yeah. If you're just wearing a plain blue hat. S- super sus. Where did you get it? Where did they sell just plain blue hats? So lastly, they mentioned somewhere in this episode, Reasonable Doubt. And in forensics, we always say beyond a reasonable doubt, and reasonable doubt is any reason to doubt anything that the prosecution's trying to prove in its case. So if a juror has any reason to doubt anything about the prosecution's case, that's a reasonable doubt, and that juror should vote not guilty. Because a person's life and liberty is at stake, the prosecution has the highest burden. They must prove their case beyond any and all reasonable doubt if there's any evidence that might just might indicate innocence, then that is a reason to doubt, which means that a jury should return to a not guilty verdict. So just a little legal information there for you guys. Very much. So it's the innocent until proven guilty thing. It's the prosecutor's job to prove that this person is guilty. And if there's any reason you doubt it, you don't have to believe they're entirely innocent but you have to be swayed that they are fully guilty, yeah. Yeah, that's why evidence collection, especially like on our part when we do do evidence collection, is so important Mm -hmm. to maintain like proper packaging, like chain of custody, because a court and a prosecutor could find holes in it, and then that destroys the entire case. So this episode dealt a lot with bite mark evidence, which made us think of a very well-known case that they even brought up in the episode, Ted Bundy. So Ted Bundy was famously convicted on bite mark evidence from one of his last victims. However, we thought it would be better if we told this story from the perspective of someone who survived Ted Bundy. So I think the thing with serial killer cases is that people get fascinated with them and a lot of times the media sensationalizes them. And a lot of the time, the killers are the ones who get remembered while the victims or the survivors and their families are just seen as part of this like scary story. I read an article from the Rolling Stone titled Ted Bundy's Living Victim Tells Her Story by a writer who I really enjoy named Tori Telfer. She wrote a book that I really like called Lady Killers and is also the host of a podcast called Criminal Broads, Why Women Kill. In 2019, when the Netflix shows about Ted Bundy were coming out because it was going to be the anniversary of his execution, Tori Telfer sat down with Kathy Kleiner Rubin, who survived an attack from Ted Bundy. 
Kathy says that she, I really enjoyed this bit in the article. So Kathy says she goes into bookstores with her husband and always goes right for the true crime section. And she'll find a book about Ted Bundy and flip through the pages until she finds her name. She then turns to her husband and says, now you go and find a book with your name in it. Kathy Kleiner was 20 years old when Ted Bundy came into her bedroom and attacked her while she was a student at Florida State University. Kathy decided that she wanted to try to figure Ted Bundy out, which is why she seems so comfortable pursuing the true crime section of a bookstore. A lot of content surrounding Ted Bundy seems to say that he was a horrible monster, yet there's always some kind of undeniable, flattering undertone to a lot of it. They cast Zac Efron to play him in a movie, which, I don't know, everybody loves Zac Efron, and then you cast him to play this horrible person. Yeah, they try to make him almost seem like he wasn't a horrible, disgusting person because a hot actor is portraying him they always try to push that narrative that ted bundy was super charming and attractive and i other people who have survived him said that he wasn't they're just like i felt bad for him and he was asking for help so i helped him he preyed on women's emotions and empathy because he would put on like a fake cast and be like hey can you help me carry my books yeah he would seem weak so they'd be like oh i want to help you yeah he wasn't charming them they felt bad for him this is different. There's a song also that I really like called Lot of True Crime by Penelope Scott. She has a bit about Ted Bundy. I think it's all about Ted Bundy, actually. And she says he was just sort of charismatic and white. All right. And he was so fucking sure he had the right. But he's ugly. And I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> and that's my favorite. I it's, it's like a song that trended on TikTok when I first heard it. And that was the first bit I heard. And I was like, this is brilliant the year that he was arrested he was even called kennedy-esque in some media which that's just so gross i don't know don't glorify these people don't glorify horrible people who do horrible things even in 2018 when kathy joined twitter a ted bundy fan account which is also disgusting responded to her first tweet saying oh there you are kathy what a sick person to one have a ted bundy fan account and find her and retweet that that's horrifying So Kathy's response to all the movies, shows, books, and even merchandise about Bundy is, quote, he was, and he lived, and he breathed, and he did what he did. And at some point, he was possibly a real person. I think it's good for people to read books about Bundy. I really do. They need to know that there's evil out there, but that they can control it. In the fall of 1976, Kathy was set to attend FSU in Tallahassee, where she pledged Chi Omega, and after her parents insisted, she moved into a sorority house her sophomore year, They thought it would be safer because she had a house mother and combination locks on the door, so they thought it would be safer than the dormitory. But the night of January 14th, 1978, after having attended a wedding that day, Kathy went to bed in her room at the sorority house around 10.30 p.m. At 3 a.m., Ted Bundy would creep into her and her roommate Karen's room, waking them up. Ted Bundy had fled to Tallahassee after escaping jail for a second time. And I have to quote directly from the article here because I love the way Tori Telfer wrote this next sentence about Bundy. He was a nose picker, a law school dropout, and a necrophiliac who often mispronounced words. See, she gets it. She gets it. He had escaped jail after being arrested on one count of kidnapping and murder in Colorado. Unknown to the public at this point, he had already murdered dozens of young women in Washington, Utah, and Colorado. Though claiming he was innocent, Bundy had made two escapes after arrest. The first was after jumping through a courthouse window in Aspen, and the second by sneaking out of an overhead crawl space, after which he ran to Florida and rented a room under a fake name near the Chi Omega house. On his way to the sorority house that night, he picked up a piece of firewood by the back door and found that the combination lock to the door was broken. 
He went upstairs with a piece of firewood where he first attacked and killed Margaret Bowman with a blow to the head and then strangulation. He then crossed the hall to Lisa Levy's room where he attacked and murdered Lisa as well. He also sexually assaulted her and left several bite marks on her. These bite marks would be the first piece of evidence to link Ted Bundy to the crimes. He then crossed the hall to Karen and Kathy's room. Kathy says, The room was dark and I didn't have my glasses on, but I remember seeing a black mass. I couldn't even see if it was a person. I saw a club. I saw him lift it over his head and slam it into me. The first time, it didn't hurt. It was pressure, like someone pressing on your arm. And then he hit me again. And I think that's where he hit me in the face and broke my jaw in three places and I passed out. But that's what I remember the most, him lifting the club and bringing it down on me. The room was small enough that Ted Bundy was basically able to hit Kathy and her roommate almost simultaneously. But before he could kill either woman, car lights came through the window and scared him off. A sorority sister, Nita Neary, was returning home from a date. Nita spotted Bundy's distinct profile as he fled the scene, and she would be the only eyewitness account at his upcoming trial. Paramedics arrived and believed that Kathy had been shot in the face. She was beaten so... She was hit that hard. Yes. She tried to yell out, but her injuries, which included a shattered jaw, torn right cheek, and tongue almost bitten in half, made it impossible. After a week in the hospital, after having her jaw wired shut and guard outside her hospital door, police took Kathy back to the Chi Omega house to see if the attacker had taken anything from her room. She says when she got to her room, there was blood spattered all over the wall, all over, and my green and white bread spread was covered. My beautiful bed spread that I had gotten a few weeks earlier, that my mom and I had spent so much time picking out, there was blood everywhere. Bundy was eventually caught February 15th of that year but the name didn't mean anything to her. She hadn't been keeping up with his trial in Colorado, and she didn't recognize his face because he had attacked her in the dark. Kathy tried reaching out to her sorority sisters, but none of them returned her calls. But the news was constantly covering Ted Bundy, and the rest of the world seemed to be moving on. I hadn't been around any of my sorority sisters since the attack, and they're all moving forward. And here I am, stuck in this bubble, she said. Me and Bundy in a bubble. All the while, and this always grosses me out about this trial too, Ted Bundy had groupies like showing up at the trial, basically swooning over him, which is just... That's also gross. I will never understand that. Don't glorify him. Kathy was fierce though, and she still is, and she made an effort to move on. She married that June, and after the wedding, she took a job as a bank teller. And at the... I can't believe this part of the story. At this job, she was robbed at gunpoint by a male stranger. Can she, like, can she not get a break? This poor woman. But this is what Kathy did. She just took the afternoon off after it happened and then came back to work the next day. She's a badass. So in the spring of 1979, the trial for the Chi Omega attacks was moved to Miami because no impartial jury could be found in Tallahassee. Kathy was called to testify, and Bundy stared at her from his defense table, holding his chin in his hand, looking emotionless. She says, I wasn't scared. I wasn't angry. So much as a throwing up feeling. It was so bad. It was disgusting. She answered every question staring right at Bundy. Again, what a badass. On July 24, 1979, Bundy was found guilty, and a week later, he was sentenced to death. Today, Kleiner and her husband, Scott Rubin, live in New Orleans. They are grandparents, dog owners, and extraordinarily happy people. Due to the injuries she sustained in 1978, Kleiner has had to have numerous surgeries for TMJ, and she's also survived stage 2 breast cancer. And she says, I've prayed to God, you know, it's someone else's turn. Honestly, true. She deserves 
a fucking break. It's almost like nothing's going her way, but she still like smiles in the face of defeat. I want to be her friend. One of Kathy's high school friends says she's still very much the same person she was in high school. So much of Kathy has not changed as a result of her attack. And that is what I find really amazing. I love hearing stories like this because it is true. Like the media and TV only focus on the murderer or whoever and that's the only story that gets told but oftentimes so many times the victims are just forgotten in the shadows i saw it happening a lot with ted bundy when it was like the 30th anniversary of his execution the movie with zac efron came out and that was based off of a book by ted bundy's longtime girlfriend extremely evil shockingly wicked and vile because that's what that's what the judge said but the book my phantom prince my life with ted bundy so it's based on that book netflix didn't even tell her they were making it a movie she found out when she saw the trailer that they were they were making a movie based off Mm -hmm. of her life and book and they got a lot of it wrong she re she re-released her book as a result because she took it off i think she took it off the shelves for a while and then she re-released it after the netflix movie because she's like i really need to get my side of the story straight and that's when i read it and it's it's disturbing but it's it's a good read if you want to get her side of the story which i did and I also, that's how I found Tori Telfer's article. I read it back in 2019 when it came out too, because there was so much stuff about Ted Bundy coming out. I forget how I found it. I think I had just read Lady Killers, which was a birthday gift from my cousin Jordan, who is a listener. Hi, Jordan. And yeah, it's, it was a really good article to get a different perspective. It's the same with the Jeffrey Dahmer series that was on Netflix. They didn't tell any of the families that this was happening and like they were portraying the victims in Mm-mm. the series the way they did. And the families were horrified, upset, yeah. rightfully. Rightfully. Can you imagine you're sitting down to watch a show and then you turn it on? And you see a, like a trailer for something like that? Yeah. For someone who killed one of your loved ones? I can't imagine that. I try to be more aware of it now, but I have been guilty of just getting caught up in the story of it. I think I've educated myself a little bit more now, especially having worked in forensics and worked the other side of it. But I definitely, I read everything I could about Ted Bundy. I read stuff about Dahmer. I have definitely been morbidly fascinated to that extent, but I try to be more conscious and I try to just remember like, this isn't just a scary story. This happened to real people. This was a real horrifying experience that people went through. And there's survivors still dealing with everything they went through. Yes. And I think it's something that it'd be good if more people were aware of. So I just wanted to share that part of the Ted Bundy story. Not Ted Bundy story, the Kathy Kleiner story. Yes. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of five green flags and two red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of NCIS does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.